Hello and welcome to The Book Cave. Today we're interviewing, talking to the award-winning author and historian Helen MacDonald. Helen, welcome to The Book Cave. Thank you, Jenny. <laughs> Wonderful to have you here. Helen, I just love your book. Your first Human Remains, uh, Episodes in Human Dissection. Such a great title. <laughs> Funnily enough, when that came out in a second edition with Yale University Press and they changed the title, mm. they kept the human remains, they didn't like um, episodes? human oh. twice. Ah. So it had to be dissection and its histories. Oh. I know, never mind. But I think episodes is, is really episodes a great... Episodes is good because yeah. you're not trying to tell the entire story of dissection from the moment it was invented through to now. It's episodes, telling episodes. That's exactly yes. right, and you do a great job Thank of it. You. And then your second book, mm. Possessing the Dead. Yes. Again, uh, this time about the anatomy acts. Yes, through in and what happened England. after that. Yes. Yes. So this is a sort of morbid fascination, Helen. <laughs> well, someone was asking me um, what gave me the idea because it's not it's kind of counterintuitive for me because I'm quite a happy sort of person. Mm, yeah. Um, However, I think the impetus for it was I was in a museum one day. It was a, a provincial museum and it had, as well as like artifacts like vases and pieces of mechanical equipment, um, a jar in which was part of a human body. And I was just struck by it and in particular thinking, well, who was that? Who was that once a part of and how did they come to be in this jar? And so that was the beginning of the quest, to find out who were these people on whom medicine was made. Wow. Well, this book, Human Remains, opens with, of course, you, I think, attended the dissection by the um, anatomist, I suppose you could call him, or perhaps a sort of uh, (laughs) showman. Showman, yeah, celebrity, Gunther von Hagen. Yes. Who's that fellow who looks, I've always thought, a little bit like a cadaver. In a black fedora hat. Yes. Yeah. He has a medical condition himself, hence ah. the pallor. But, yes, he always wears a fedora hat. Yeah. So he's consciously playing on the anatomist as showman, which has right. a long history. Right. But also he is a highly skilled anatomist and invented a process called plastination yeah. for preserving human body parts, which is of use in medical schools all around the world. Oh. So he's got this kind of shady aspect of his practice, but also a very professional aspect. So you actually... Uh, begin the book with this Gunter von Hagen's performing a dissection, the first public dissection of a of a human body, a dead body, since eight, the 1830s. Mm. And you talk about his statement where he says he is returning anatomy to the democratic science it once was. Yes. What does he mean by that? There is a history of... Um, of, of the public attending anatomy lessons, but it was always as a show rather than to learn anything much about mm. the human body. Mm. So um, a mid-18th century law made dissection a secondary punishment for murder. Mm. So someone who had committed murder would be sentenced both to hang by the neck until they were dead and then their body to be handed over to the surgeons to be dissected. Usually that began with a public kind of performance of dissection and the object was 
If you commit murder, you will never rest in a grave. Your body will be destroyed. Nothing you, nothing oh. will be left of you. So right. it was a punishment. Um, so naturally, after that era, it was very difficult for parliamentarians and anatomists to persuade people, well, it's no longer a punishment. Hey, it's a good thing you can do for the rest of society if you leave your body to science. Right. Hence, like, so there was about a 200-year gap in between punishment, dissection as punishment, and human beings altruistically leaving their remains, which started in about the 1950s, to medical schools. But the thing about those public dissections, as has also happened with Gunter von Hagen's, is people flocked to them. People people loved public executions. Mm. They wanted to see them, and they also wanted to see these public dissections. (laughs) Wow. So... In the late 1700s, early 1800s, we're talking about, I guess there must have been a kind of rise in medical schools and in the interest mm-hmm. in human anatomy as what a means to understand disease? Yes, to understand what goes on inside the human body because they didn't have things like x-rays that we mm. have now. But also um, a very important aspect was for surgical practice because the more a man had practised on the dead, hopefully the more skilled he would be at operating on you. Right. Now, in those days, of course, they couldn't do all kinds of operations. They didn't have anaesthesia yeah. and so on. So, but they could, of course, chop off limbs and um, take out bladder stones. And the quicker you could perform those operations with the least possible loss of blood, the better, okay. hence practising on a cadaver. So it was a very important aspect of medicine. And in fact, surgeons today argue that students aren't doing enough dissection. They're not learning on the dead body as much as they should be. Right. Okay. So, but there was obviously some kind of a shortage in these, in the early 19th century. Yes. And so we come to the really, um, infamous case of the famous, the most famous body snatchers, which I think is where the term comes from. Burke and Hare. They actually weren't body snatchers in, in terms of lifting bodies from the grave, right. which was rife at that time. Yeah. Um, but they were two men who worked on a canal. They were building a canal between Glasgow and Edinburgh. They were Irish immigrants. One of them had a boarding house and they decided, they learned that you could earn about £10 per corpse if you sold it to Dr Robert Knox. Right. So... Who was a legitimate doctor. Who was a legitimate doctor he wasn't asking anatomist. them to bring him. No, he wasn't. Court, you know. And he always claimed he didn't know they'd been murdered. Right. But others are saying, you know, he should have been suspicious. They were extremely fresh. Oh. <laughs> they, they were often still warm when he acquired them yeah. and so on. Although they didn't take them directly to Knox, they took him to the porter. So the porter is the person in an anatomist's house who receives the corpses in sacks or whatever. Um, okay. Yes. <laughs> So Burke and Hare um, hit on this wonderful plan to make money. They did indeed get about £10 per corpse. They murdered, I've forgotten, 11 to 13 people and sold their bodies to Knox and um, they were caught. Burke was the only one who hanged for it um, because um, Hare turned King's evidence and gave evidence against him and just disappeared some say he came to the Australian colonies. We're not quite sure about that. Um, but Burke was executed in public. About 10,000 people attended that execution wow. and then he was dissected. Wow, again, so, for yes, public consumption. Yes, and his oh. 
skeleton still hangs in the University of Edinburgh's Anatomy School Museum. Really? And other things. See, dissection was never only about learning medicine. Other opportunities were taken with bodies. In this case, they, they tanned some of his skin and made purses of it and covered books with it. So it's never just pure science. So are we actually, in cases like that, are we indulging individual fetishes or fantasies, do you think? Um, It was not that uncommon for accounts of of murderers' crimes to be published in a book in which their skin was used to cover Cover the the account. Yes. Um, so, and that became a very valuable thing. And there's still some of those books around, obviously, in museums, not, yeah, no, not, not, in, on, not on the bookshelf. Readings, bookshelf. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. Goodness me. Well, actually, um, that's interesting because you have this amazing photograph or picture in here of Mary Patterson. Yes. Who was a young woman who, who was, uh, who died. And they actually used her almost as a sort of erotic. Yes. Image. Very troubling. Yeah. Um, so she was one of Burke and Hare's murder victims. Yeah. And when her body uh, appeared in Robert Knox's anatomy school, some of the students recognised her. She was a prostitute they'd visited. Right. And so then they dissected her and art was made from her body and, yes. So there's so much more to the actual just mm. dissection for scientific purposes or medical advancement there's a lot more to it than that okay so isn't dissecting people even well certainly then and possibly even now about uh handling the bodies of the marginalized yes After these murders, um, there'd been several attempts by parliamentarians in Britain to bring in an act that would enable a legitimate source of bodies to be obtained for the medical schools rather than grave robbing and certainly rather than murder. Mm, mm. Um, And they brought in an act successfully in 1832, so just a couple of years after Burke was hanged. And... It didn't specify precisely where those bodies would come from, but what actually happened was um, people, the poor, the insane and the sick were used from then on. So bodies that died, people who died in an institution, in Britain, in workhouses, in hospitals, in jails, on the hulks waiting for transportation to Australia, those people would be sent to be dissected if no relative arrived to claim them for burial in 48 hours after the death. Oh. But the trouble with claiming a body for burial in those days was first you need to have been notified. Yeah. And they didn't have our means of communication. No, I was about to say it might take a week for a letter to arrive. You know, at some distance away. And second, to claim a body meant you had to be able to pay for it to be buried. And many people, for example, the relatives of those who lived in workhouses couldn't. Um, Now, another interesting thing about that was that in Australia, when Anatomy Acts came into being, they were all modelled on that British Act, except they reduced that time in which you could claim a body to 12 hours. So you can imagine what happened here. So here, most bodies were taken from hospitals, benevolent asylums, immigrant asylums and insane asylums. 
So it was always the marginalised used until well into the 20th century. Wow. So there must have been, I suppose, a sort of equivalent of human trafficking, but mm. in bodies rather than in live people. Yes. and Because people were, were people making money out of this? Well, not on the surface. <laughs> um, okay. However, there are interesting things that this kind of law also enabled. So medical men became very astute at acquiring bodies to dissect and for their students to dissect and to autopsy. And, of course, when those medical men travelled to Australia and took up positions here, there were other bodies that became very valuable and they were used to acquiring bodies and knew how to, and that was Aboriginal people's bodies. So there was, in fact, money to be made from them because you could you could acquire them for museums in Britain who were crying out for such remains and they would um, give you money straight up or you would offer to sell the body or or the or the skull usually because a whole body is a very cumbersome thing and you had to preserve it so skulls became objects of trade so what was the idea about what was what's the perceived value in a human skull Mm -hmm. in the 19th century what are they trying to particularly an aboriginal skull all sorts of things so there was a belief um that the shape of the skull indicated something about the mind it contained, the brain it contained. So the idea of phrenology? Yeah, phrenology comes into it, right. but also racial science. So, of course, people noticed that skull shapes differed depending if you were in Africa or if you were in England or if you were in Australia. So um, avid collectors like Joseph Barnard Davis, who was a doctor in the north of England, um, wanted to collect two skulls at least from every part of the world, one female, one male, so that you could have representative samples and become like the key place in in which yours was the collection that everyone wanted to visit and everyone referred to in their academic writing and so on. Right. So Barnard Davis was one of those men who was very astute in who he contacted in the colonies to acquire this kind of material. He had a network comprising colonial governors, medical men who worked in jail, and hospitals. Um, He would read explorers' accounts of their travels and write to the explorers. He'd write to the naval office and say, are any ships going to southern Africa and who on them might procure me um, things for my museum? So, Does that... And did he succeed in creating this collection? By the end of his life, he had um, a collection of about... 1,700 skulls from all around the world, um, which he sold to the Royal College of Surgeons in England a couple of years before he died. So it then became part of their collection, which was already large but was now vast. And do they still have it? No. They've gradually repatriated, but much of their collection was bombed during the Second World War, so destroyed. Okay. Do we know if, I mean, I I can't imagine making any particularly useful discoveries because human skulls are surely just human skulls. Well, there are discoveries to be made, I think, and that's certainly an argument mounted by the museums who want to keep them, who don't want to repatriate them. They're saying this is human history. It's not any longer just racial history. It's not just about where these particular people came from. It's about all of us and how we have evolved in different environments. 
But the counter-argument to that is to point out how very little research has ever actually been done on those bones. Yeah. Often it was just enough to have them. Yes. As Joseph Barnard David said of the British Museum, he said, they're all just in drawers gathering dust. No one looks at them. He was outraged by yeah, that. Yeah. Um, so, of course, there are different measurements, but the thing is that doesn't indicate that there's an inferior or superior brain. That's what it's I was It's nothing up. to do with that. No, that's right. Yeah. yeah. There must be all sorts of other factors that yes. come into it. But, but how fascinating. Yes. So you write so beautifully about the case, uh, the history of this poor, poor young woman, Mary McLaughlin. Mm. Um her life, death and dismemberment yeah. in 1830 in Australia, in Tasmania. And I think this is such a, 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 an evocative account, a really quite emotionally charged account. Yes. Tell us about Mary. Well, what I always try to do in my history is so you get the big picture, mm. dissection was happening, but then I like to zero down on one particular person and find out as much as I can about their life to, and how they, the circumstances in which they lived and how this happened to them. So Mary McLaughlin, I had to go to Scotland for this story. She, she became the first woman to be sentenced to death and dissection in Van Diemen's land. Yes. Um, now Tasmania. Yeah, now yeah. Tasmania. So I went back to Scotland to look at the records of her trial to see how she had become available for that purpose. And it's a very sad story. She'd married into a family called the Sutherland family, though in Scotland women keep their own names, so she was McLaughlin. She had two children by William Sutherland, who were about three and five. And what becomes clear from reading the legal records is that her husband and his brothers um, had robbed a house, but Mary McLaughlin was found with a bonnet from that robbery and she was charged not just with um, thieving herself but with being a receiver of stolen goods which attracted a worse sentence, a longer sentence. So she was sentenced to be transported to Van Diemen's Land for 14 years. It was her first crime. Um, well, she's probably been given the bonnet as a gift. Well, yes, exactly. You know, who knows? Yeah. And there are heartbreaking stories in her file of, of people who gave evidence on her behalf, mm. such as the children that she cared for in a factory. So she was part of a textile factory. She was an overseer there. And the children all thought she was a kind overseer. Mm. And they would say things like, she would give us her shawl to wrap around our legs on a cold day. That's the human story, yes, isn't yes. it? Which is so important. Yes, exactly. So she was torn from her family, transported to Van Diemen's Land and assigned to a man called Charles Nairn and his family because that's the system that, um, that it pertained at the time. So she became their domestic servant. She'd never been a domestic servant before. She'd been a factory worker, but it was just assumed all women could do domestic stuff. (laughs) Um, And... She became pregnant there. Mm. Now, um, the obvious implication in reading between the lines of all the newspaper accounts of that is that Charles Nairn had impregnated her. He was a man with a wife and family of his own. And um, she was sent back to the female factory, which was a prison. That's what happened to women when they got pregnant. And she gave birth there and she... Um, disposed of the child. So she killed the child in the outhouse, the toilet. And um, 
I don't know who informed on her. You probably didn't need to. They probably just found the body Mm. and she came out of Mm. that room and that's why she was sentenced to death. So There are lots of reasons why the child might have died. There were, and in those days, um, evidence um, about whether a child had been born alive or born dead was very hazy. There was all sorts of arguments between medical men on what constituted life. Did the child have to take a breath of its own accord after it had exited the vagina and so on? And where does the proof lie of that? Um, Anyway, she was sentenced to death and... How incredibly cruel. Yes. So um, hanged at 8 o'clock in the morning as the St David's bells chimed, which was the time they always did, and then... Oh, I I found it hard to let her go. Yes. And she's one of those characters that, not a character, one of those historical figures that is still haunts me. Mm. Um, and whenever I go back to Scotland, I do a little bit more searching because I wonder what happened to her, ch- yes, her two her children. children. I assume they were put into a poor house because their father disappeared very quickly oh, from wow. the scene. He knew he was guilty. Um, so probably they went into a poor house. I haven't found them in any records nor have I found any family members of hers thus far. Oh, sad. Yes. And then she was dissected. Yes, and then she was dissected. There was no record kept of that. So I've had to reimagine that in terms of what I knew was happening in the Hobart General Mm. Hospital at that time, who had power, which was the key surgeon, um, James Scott, and um, how he wielded power in that place so he could say who could and who could not participate as a medical man in a dissection. Right. Uh, yeah. Because it was Scott who had this continuing um, fight, really, with Crowther, yes. William Crowther, who'd come out from England. Yes. And was obviously and he wanted to he would... keep Crowther out. Yes, yes. Scott <laughs> wanted to keep Crowther out of having bodies and things. And yes. Crowther kept applying to various dignitaries. Because to get... you couldn't really teach medical students unless you could offer them access to bodies. Right. And William Crowther wanted to teach medical students. Right. But now it's Crowther, isn't it, who had did this dreadful thing to William Lanning with his 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 son, son, Bingham Crowther. Uh, No. No? Um, So this William Crowther, who was a little bit marginally involved with the Mary McLaughlin case, had a son called William Lodwick Crowther. Right. He also became a doctor, went back to England to do his training and so on. And when he was back in Van Diemen's land, became um, a well-to-do doctor himself, but also got caught up in this business of providing Aboriginal bodies to different medical men back in Britain. He had a relationship with the Royal College of Surgeons. He'd sent them whales. Like at one stage they had a whale 30 foot long suspended in their museum. He sent them that. So because he had a whaling business on the side. You know, these colonial men, they were different to us. And so when he learned that the Royal College of Surgeons was seeking Aboriginal remains, he knew that he was in a position to provide them with... Because they did this dreadful thing with... Was it King... Is it William Lanny, also known as King King Billy? Billy, Who was considered at the time to be the last full-blooded Tasmanian male Aborigine. Yes, Yes, he was. Yeah. Um, Which probably wasn't true, but that's what they thought of him as. that's what they thought at the time. So William Lanny, King Billy, Mm. and he dies. And this other fellow, Ross, Mm. has died. And 
Crowther goes in and they mm. do this terrible thing with the skulls. Yes. Tell us about that. Helen. So William Lanny um, worked on a whaling ship and he came back into port and like all the whalers um, got very drunk mm. and he contracted a disease and he died from it. Crowther had his body instantly taken from the inn in which he died into the hospital where he was in control of what happened to him. But there were also doctors working there on behalf of the Royal Society who was another group who wanted to keep William Lanny's remains. And they argued that his skeleton should always stay in the colony because he was the last man and he was a type specimen and that was very important to keep at home, not send to Britain. So um, at night, William Crowther and his son went into the hospital dissecting room and there was a, a school tape teacher named Thomas Ross lying on the dissecting table because he had been poor when he died. Mm. No one claimed his body and he was being dissected by the students. And there was William Lanny. So um, Crowther cut out, made a slit in Lanny's face, cut out the skull um, and he substituted under Lanny's skin the skull of Thomas Ross. So put the white man's skull in to beneath Thomas Ross's skin. Now, that wasn't going to fool anybody for very long. No. And, of course, when the Royal Society men came in, they could see something was wrong, picked up the head and out pops the white skull. Um, so they instantly knew what Crowther had done. It was effectively the end of his career at, um, at that hospital. He never got a foot in that door again, uh, but he did stay a medical man. And um, no one knew what happened to that skull. It it was right. meant, rumours were that it was shipped to the Royal College of Surgeons. The Royal College of Surgeons said they never received it. So who knows what happened to So William Lanny's skull is still, still missing, missing to this day. Yes. But I found out what happened to Thomas Ross's skull, yeah. which had fallen down and nobody cared anything about that. That was just a disposable object. Oh. So it had been buried in the Presbyterian burying ground. <laughs> wow. But it's just like... Well, you have this wonderful um, quote, that you, your words. The deceased are turned into anonyms by instruments and by words. Mm -hmm. Now, I can see how they're made, I guess, anonymous is what you mean. Yes. By the instruments. What do you mean by words? They Because they're never spoken of as subjects, only as objects. So those bodies that, that lie in museums and uh, medical schools are there for a particular purpose. Um, the most that might be known of them is, well, nowadays maybe, a, a, a toe label that says um, male, what they died of, and so on. But in the 19th century, all these people upon whose bodies medicine were was made they're not known they just mm. they're just nothing they're just objects right. so i'm very fascinated by what turns a subject into an object and it's really interesting to read first year medical school students accounts of when they first go into dissecting and some of them say things like i was fine you know it didn't bother me at all oh but i draped a tissue over the eyes 
because right. I felt the eyes were looking at me. Yeah. Or, not everybody, of course, but some students have these kind of uncanny experiences with the corpse when they first meet it, when they first encounter it. And the experience today is very different to the experience I was writing about when they were fresh corpses, smelly, you had to do your dissection very quickly, they disintegrated yeah. before your eyes. Now they're preserved for a very long time. More than one person works on them. Um there's something about that moment that you shift from subject to object and it's not just death that does it. It's Intuitively, it is death that does it. You're a, yes. you're a thing once you're dead. But when you're first in that dissecting room, that's not how you're experienced. You still, People still wonder about you like your hands. What did those hands do in life and so on. When I went to Gunther von Hagen's exhibition, the thing that struck me was he had a whole body plastinate of a Chinese woman and he always poses them mm. in strange ways. But I looked at her feet and saw all the wrinkles behind her ankle and it immediately gave me a sense of her age and then I started thinking of her walking through life and yes, you know, all yes, that stuff. Yes. The dead aren't just dead. No, no, <laughs> no. no, because, well, because they've lived yes. and we can imagine the, yes, the living and and ourselves as mm. dead. Like yeah, just... well that's right. It's, <laughs> yes. it's it's sort of a real in your face reminder of your mortality exactly. and the fact that you too will one day be exactly. a corpse and a cadaver. Yes, whether or not you're dissected is another question. But but at least that nowadays it'll be your choice. Well, you certainly hope so. <laughs> you hope we'll come to the <laughs> yes. modern world soon. I yes. think that's that's really kind of interesting. There's also that question of when. After mm. death, does the person cease being a person yes. and become the object? Because And when do we stop having any um, ethical responsibilities to that person? Yeah. Like we treat, well, I hope we treat with great respect the dead now as they're laid out in coffins, visited often by family for a couple of days yeah. and then dispose, although we do often shovel ourselves into ovens these days, which didn't happen in the 19th century. No, that is true. And so, I mean, even today there's been this scandal in Queensland because they'd swapped out the $1,700 silky oak coffin for a pine box worth $70. There you go. And so apparently this is rife in the funeral industry. Well, So yes. we're not getting the respect because clearly they're just shoveling one body well, out of the expensive. And scandals in the US quite recently where they found that people were running body rackets out of funeral parlours. So people were selling parts of bones, etc., to the human tissue industry because that can be for profit in the US. Oh. Um, and people who thought they'd buried their relatives hadn't later found that they might have had pipe instead of bone in their legs. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay, so coming back to dissection then, obviously we've got a long history of dissection in which many terrible and very corrupt things have happened and what we would now with modern day sensibilities think of as completely awful. But isn't dissection a way of benefiting the living? Yes, it is. Um, so how so do it you has, sort of square well, that away with the... As an historian, how I square that is I know that you have to break eggs to make an omelette, yeah. but I like to spend my time with the broken eggs. <laughs> and I think it behoves us as a society to contemplate a little mm. what goes into the making of a good thing. 
Yes. So yes, if I was having an operation, of course I would want that surgeon to be well practiced. If it was during the 19th century, it would be on cadavers. Um, but at the same time, my sensibility is, okay, so how come some, it was okay to practice on some people's bodies mm. while other people were arranging very grand funerals for themselves, thank you very much, and making sure that they didn't end up disintegrating in an anatomist's dissecting so, room. So we're really sort of talking about in the modern world, sort of is it autopsy versus dissection, science they're versus... Dif- they're different. They're different. So, so talk about um, the difference between autopsy and dissection. two different kinds of post-mortem examinations, one of which can be ordered by a coroner. So if it's a suspicious death or um, the cause is unknown, a coroner can order an autopsy. Uh, you don't have the right to protest about that. Right. Um, although you can ask for it to be limited. and um, What is a limited autopsy as um, opposed to? Only opening certain areas of the body. Like if it looks like it was a heart attack, would you open that part of the body, not the brain? Um, But the coroner doesn't have to abide by that. He can order any any kind of autopsy. Um, But that autopsy is only meant to be carried out to determine the cause of death. You're not meant to be taking bits and pieces for museums and whatever else. Um, And there's a second type of autopsy, which is a hospital post-mortem. Now I'm talking in the 19th century, but probably Mm. still, which is when people are meant to be asked their permission for that kind of autopsy. And usually the reason is, well, we understand what the reason for death is, but we want to see how how that disease acted inside the body so that we will learn more for our future patients or be able to find a genetic cause for something perhaps mm. that, that you and the family might need to know about for other reasons. Nowadays, you can object and say, no, you don't want that kind of autopsy carried out. And people often do. They say that person suffered enough and whatever. Um, But in the 19th century, it was often a condition of you entering hospital that you could not object to an autopsy should you die there. So at Guy's Hospital in London, there's a little notice put on a wall saying, should should you as a patient die, you agree to have um, a post-mortem examination. Which sounds sort of quite bland and calm yes. and a bit ordinary. You think, oh, well, a post-mortem examination, like doctors look in my eyes or something. But it actually wasn't because hospitals were also a source of subjects for dissection for mm. students to practice on. Students and the medical schools did not like receiving a body that had already been autopsied. They called those destroyed bodies. Oh. And they'd already been so mutilated that they were useless for dissection. So an autopsy could be an extremely mutilating procedure. Um, so much so that you wondered during the 19th century if they were being used as pseudo-dissections rather than just to notice what right, the disease had done right. inside the body. Okay. Mm. Because you actually have this wonderful thing. You say, as the skin is breached, the body becomes safe to see. Mm. And is that because there's a kind of disjunct? We know each other just purely from the external yes. view, but the internal view is so foreign to us yes, all because... it is. And, and, and that's what um, some modern-day students also say. So, so they're okay once they're inside, but when you first see that person, it still looks like a person. Now, mm. today's cadavers... Um, 
have usually been preserved maybe for at least six months. They smell of formaldehyde oh. and not of, not of anything human and they're quite leathery to the touch. So imagine how much more confronting it was during the 19th century, mm-hmm. especially the early 19th century, before those methods of preservation. Well, I mean, I look back to this, this picture of... Um, Poor Mary Patterson, you know, where mm. she just looks like a, she looks like she's a, a, a an artist model, model. a nude yes. model in this very erotic yes. pose, and everything's obviously very fresh. And I mean, she's obviously just been killed, yes. which is just awful. But she looks like a sort of Botticelli Venus or something. But the link between art and anatomy has always been very strong, oh. and in fact, many anatomists would talk about their own work as an art. There's really? interesting work still being done today, so. Just recently written a catalogue essay for an exhibition by an artist called Lauren Black. I don't know if you yeah, know her. No. She's got an exhibition at the moment at the Art Gallery of Ballarat. Right. And she did a residency in um, a medical museum. And so she would have an object in a jar in front of her. And from that, she would create art, her own art, her own response to that object in the jar her work is just wonderful. She She's also a botanical artist, so it's that kind of level of detail. But it really makes you think you, you so see is the she, humanness even in a section of colon. So is or, she drawing the item? Not literally. And some of, her, some of her sketches are wonderful. So she will use three layers of paper with carbon paper in between mm. each. She'll look at the object and then she'll work on it blind. So she'll look down and do it with her left hand instead and her right hand, so as surgeons do, working both oh. parts together and not know what she's actually sketched until she lifts the carbon paper and sees what's underneath. So really creative stuff, wow. taking anatomical specimens as their beginning point. How extraordinary. Mm. So... You see, do you see dissection as a cultural activity? As much, yes. And it certainly was then because what it showed about the culture in which it was taking place was choices that were made about who to dissect, Mm. how poverty was treated, how mental health was treated. the power that accrued to medical men, like this kind of sense that I have a right to someone else's mm. body and if I'm denied that right, I should be able to do whatever I like, i.e. dig it up from the grave. This, these are cultural matters. These aren't medical matters. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes. And there must have been people who objected. Oh, you know, massive objections. I there mean, were riots. Yes, yeah. You write about in Edinburgh? Yes. In the 1830s? But also um, elsewhere in Britain and also in the United States, people loathed the body snatchers because actually no one's body was safe. It wasn't just the poor being lifted from graves. It was anybody you could get your hands on, the fresher the better. And so... If you were wealthy enough to afford it, you could hire watchers to watch over a grave for 24, 48 hours until the body was going a bit off and yeah. wouldn't attract such a price from the anatomist. Is that also why we have mausoleums, like great stone edifices to I'm not sure about protect. mausoleums, but they had mort safes, mort safes so oh. there would be like iron bars over the place in which the body was buried. That was specifically to stop body snatching. Wow. So how long did body snatching go on for? Oh, 
18th century into the early 19th century, the Anatomy Act was meant to stop it, but it didn't actually mention um, stopping oh, it. Okay. An earlier draft did. It banned body snatching, but this one didn't. But gradually, as these bodies from workhouses and hospitals became more available, there was less money to be made from right. snatched In bodies. But then even these bodies from the workhouses and mental institutions and different... That in itself must have caused, I mean, really, it's a mm. horrible sort of dreadful, you know, immoral sort of practices that must have gone on for people to make. Were people yes. still making money out of bodies? Um, Selling no, bodies? No. From, uh, well, they might have been. I don't know. I haven't found yeah. anything about that. But certainly people did object when they found out. So um, there was one case in the 1850s when two daughters had come to a mental institution to claim their father's body for burial and found it had been opened and who knew what had happened inside the body. Oh. And they were terribly distraught and they went to their minister of religion and he took their case up on their behalf but you know it's after the event yeah. so um and also what happened in lunatic asylums was lots of medical men had a research interest in the brain so there were vast collections of brains oh so you know it was always said to be oh we need this for scientific purposes but the whole thing was in the 19th century consent was never requested nor was it required like what? So that wasn't part of the law that you needed. No, no. Oh, you you had a right under the under the Anatomy Act to claim the body for burial, but if you didn't turn up within that time period, having been informed by post that someone had died, <laughs> then the body was fair game. Yes. Goodness me, how dreadful! Yes. Was it the case of Mrs. Parsley, <sighs> Mrs. Parsley, mm. whose body did disappear, even though her family had made it clear that they didn't want it to be dissected? I've forgotten this one. Yeah. I've forgotten this one. I should have reread the book. No, no, that's yes. right. It's in Possessing the Dead yeah. and it's it's a fantastic story. Oh, oh yes, yes. And that her, was the Alfred Feast case. Yeah, that's right, Alfred Feast and well, Hogg. Well, just showed you what you could get away with. Yes, that's and so, they, they said, oh, no, they'd mix it up with a Mr. Ba Baisley. So yes. Parsley and Baisley were yes. meant to be sort of similar Think, in oh, name. yes, maybe if you have a certain accent, they sound yeah, the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this Alfred Feast was a workhouse master who knew he could make a lot of money out of the dead. So people would come to claim the bodies for burial. They would go um, following what they thought was a full coffin and see it buried, but in fact that was an empty coffin <sighs> or it was dissected remains and other detritus that had been shoved into the coffin oh. that was sent off for burial because he had a deal with Guy's Hospital so he would supply them for an amount of money he had to split with the undertaker. They were both in cahoots. And they would dispose of their rubbish and give him a coffin to bury, but it didn't contain the remains it was meant to contain. And there was a similar case in Scotland in the 1890s. Yes, oh, really? Yes. As late as the 1890s? Oh, yes. So for how long do you think this has gone on? Does it still oh, go on? Not that I know of, no. No, it doesn't <laughs> go on. Um, 
First, there are all sorts of new laws, especially since the end of the 20th century when um, several scandals unfolded at the same time internationally about how common post-mortems were and people didn't know that material was being removed during post-mortem and retained, right. including a whole collection of children's hearts Now, that's so the Alder Hay yes. scandal of 1999, yes. which is not even 20 years ago no, yet. No, that's right. Now, tell us about and, that. Well... There was a doctor. Um, where where is it? In Liverpool, right. in England, they they were having an inquiry at the Bristol Children's Hospital and found that there was a large collection of children's hearts there that hadn't been public knowledge. Um, and then they investigated other hospitals, including Alder Hay, and found that it had actually become a cultural thing. It was routine. If a surgeon or physician asked you for a part from a body, that that part would be kept and given to him for research purposes, him or her. And that was happening under the Anatomy Act, but also, more importantly, under the Human Tissue Act, um, which came into play in the mid-20th century, 1961, under which um, consent was meant to be obtained, but it wasn't really consent. You were allowed to object to a post-mortem So it was an opt-out system, it was not an exactly, opt-in system. Exactly. And you have to know about a system in order in to opt-out. Yeah, absolutely. But parts were routinely being obtained, always said to be for good purposes, for research collections and so on. And when the investigators asked doctors, well, but you know about the Human Tissue Act, you can't do that under the Act, they would either profess ignorance of the law, and they may well have been ignorant of the law, or they would say things like, well, there was just a culture of culture of expectation, and there would be consequences for someone who did not keep the object that doctor wanted. So this culture of expectation is among doctors and surgeons in the medical profession. And is yes. this because of this long history, do you think, of obtaining yeah. bodies such sort of, I guess, nearly to what, all through the 19th century, all through the 1800s of obtaining plenty of bodies through these years and as being many able as to say, uh, I'm doing this for the good of humanity. Yeah, yeah, because so I'm doing this research. Anything and we can say, oh, this is for the good of humanity. Yeah, like, it, it rationalises, yes, it makes it okay. Yes, of course. And so we move into the 20th century, and by the end of the 20th century, in 1999, we've got, what, 200 years of, I mm. guess, cultural practice of mm. people having access to bodies enough yes. to, to practice And being on. very cross when they weren't given access to bodies. How fascinating. <laughs> um, and so and that resulted these, but... in new, t- new human tissue acts. Okay, yeah, across a, the Yes, which of had the word consent in them, so no longer lack of objection, especially in Britain. Now you had to give positive consent. Right. And so these were children's yes, bodies children, in 1999, um, uh, There was one man I'm thinking of who was doing research into cleft pellets, so children's heads had been kept. No. The parents had no idea that they those... The a that the whole head had been taken, or b that it was still living in a bottle in a in a, a laboratory research institute. Somewhere. There was there was one horrible one instance of an infant who had died, and had just been labelled um, something like no longer necessary to keep, cut up, and dispose of. And so parents following those inquiries came forward and said. 
We thought we had buried our child. Now we're being told there's a bit of the child here, a bit of the child here. Some of them had two or three different objects to dispose of that was all part of their child, and they were re-traumatised by that. Oh, absolutely. Yes. So is part of the issue then in the modern day, because part of my rational brain sort of says, well, the person's dead, Mm. child, adult, you know, Mm. you're dead, what does it matter in mm. that way? But, of course, the emotional person, mm. I'm just appalled and horrified and aghast and the thought of my child being buried without their head or an arm yes. would just be would be completely traumatising. Yes. So is this partly because we really haven't come to grips with death? Or? Possibly, but also for us when we think of someone we love, like we remember that person through their body, don't we, their mm. laughter, mm. Uh, Things like their that. expressions. They're never yeah. just an object to us. No. Their bodies, even at the same time as we dispose of their bodies, as we necessarily must either by burial or cremation, we still think them think of them as that human being. And for my thinking for myself, I would hate to think that someone else was doing things to their body just for their own purposes and for research that might never be carried out. Oh, yes. Yes, and and that I would know nothing of that. I think it's fine if you know about something and you consent to it. Yes. But often, of course, the difficulty is you're asked for your consent at the most traumatic moment of your own life, especially if it's the death of a child rather than of an older person who's lived a good life and so on. So there is probably a fear by medical professionals that the answer to their request will be no and maybe that's why it's it is it is a hard question to ask you know the moment of death or soon afterwards by the way can we keep your child's body and but do we know if the research was was actually being done on all those body well, parts those reports those scandals indicated that a whole lot of material was kept and people had even forgotten that material was there so which just makes yes. it somehow so much worse so I'm sure there were authentic researchers who did do research in the way that they were meant to and should have done, but then what happens to these objects? Like it's almost like an acquisitive. You have the power to get it while you can. Get it while you can, just in case I need it later. Yes, and so that also kind of, I guess, points to a is. I mean, is it a lack of humanity in someone who's able to take? a body and just simply objectify it in that way, particularly a child's body. I I guess we're much more concerned about... Well, I think it's very telling if, um, here I'm going back to the 19th century, um, many of the the surgeons and anatomists I looked at, I tried to find out how they themselves had been buried, had they donated their bodies for this purpose. Yeah, what a great question. No, funnily enough, not. So um, a proper funeral, disposal in in a proper cemetery and so on. So I think there is a long history of medical men experimenting on themselves, which I think is a very noble thing to do rather than experimenting on other people. But, you know, if you're arguing that people should be leaving their bodies to science, well, I think it behoves you to leave your own. (laughs) I think that's pretty fair. I think that's pretty fair. So we, you've talked about bodies as battle, battlefields mm. um, and this sort of – so is it still a battlefield to get access to the dead? I don't think so, no. Is that Since, because people – sorry, go ahead. Yeah, 
It's very interesting and no one's done much research on this. Since the 1950s, so after the Second World War is when most bodies used in medical schools have been donated by that person for that reason. Mm. Um, Now, that is quite a shift because I've got archival material just from the 1930s and 40s and they were still bemoaning that they couldn't get enough corpses, no one was donating their bodies. Right. What caused that shift? I think that's a really good area to research. Mm. Was it the devastation of the Second World War? If it, and, and bodies not seeming to be as important anymore. So many people had been killed and disappeared. But you would think that would also have been an effect after the first one. Well, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. Which was. Uh, that didn't have that horrendous. effect. Yeah, no, yeah. it didn't have that effect. But perhaps it needed two world wars. Maybe so the first it did. one was so traumatizing that you couldn't have perhaps entertained even mm. the idea. With the second one after the war that was meant to end all wars, I, perhaps there was a sort of fatigue Maybe that there set was. in. Or... And yet at the same time, we would do almost anything. When when the body of a First World War soldier is discovered now, well, yes. we would do anything to repatriate those remains. Yes, yes. And, we do the you know, DNA the testing. sacred remains. Yeah, like, yeah. But, but is that because obviously people's remains vary, um, you know, the poor victims of that terrible... Um, in Bhopal in India, yes. that those people shocking treated terribly badly. Yes. But, of course, a soldier from the Great War yes. because of the nationalistic fervour, etc. Exactly. That kind of makes the body a different sort yeah, of object. Yeah, there are bodies and bodies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, yes, there are bodies and bodies. That's right. How absolutely fascinating. And even, like, after the Second World War, my grandmother lost children in that war. And I still remember to this day I had a conversation with her in the 1970s and she said she wanted to leave her body to science. Now, that was the first I'd ever heard of such a a thing and I persuaded her. I begged her not to do it. I didn't even know what leaving (laughs) the body to science meant at that age, however. Um, So she clearly didn't didn't value her post-mortem remains at all, didn't care what became of them. Well, perhaps she felt that she was doing a greater, a higher thing with her mortal remains. I don't think she did. I have a sense she just thought, what does it matter, you're dead? Okay. Which many people do think. So perhaps the rise of secularism, perhaps the the loss of religion is a big part of it too, this idea, because wasn't there an issue with, you know, the whole Burke and Hare, you know, dissecting murderers mm. was a kind of emotional blackmail too in two ways one is well if you've murdered someone we're going to dis- not just hang you but we're going to dissect you therefore it's a deterrent supposedly mm. but the other thing is the medical men could then say well you know we need these bodies and if yes. we don't have the bodies well how can we you know make operate all- on you successfully so there's a kind of emotional blackmail in that and also um pe- people would say the reason that that emotional blackmail should have worked if people were religious was, whoa, what's going to happen on the resurrection day? Yeah, if my, if <laughs> How are they going to get my bits together? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. Which doesn't make any sense <laughs> no, at all either. No, it makes no sense No, whatsoever. when people die in fires and fall overboard <laughs> exactly. and get eaten by sharks and all sorts exactly. of things. And if God is all-powerful, then but surely there there's no problem. But there are cases in newspapers of people yeah. saying, but... But hang on, I have to be whole waiting. Yes, to rise up, <laughs> yes, in order to rise up yes, at the yes, resurrection. Yes. Perhaps they're the ones who think they're going to get up in the rapture Perhaps and you have to be do. whole to be in the rapture. 
Um, yeah, that's that's well, that's really mm. kind of interesting. Mm. So more people are leaving their body to science now. Do we think? Yes, and in fact, because medical men aren't doing as much dissection, or medical men, medical and men, women, women um, or we can say medical men when we're referring to the nineteenth century. That's for right. Us, but yes, um, but learning medicine now doesn't require so much dissection. There's uh, not as much need for bodies oh. because there's computer-generated um, okay. learning tools and so on. I wouldn't have thought that was quite the that's same quite, as actually no. cutting into like that first scalpel and that's cut what surgeon, into some flesh. surgeons say this can never substitute no. for actually doing dissection. Yeah. Um, so that's a controversial thing. Um, but also. What is interesting is that, well, now we have other post-mortem uses for the dead, such as organ transplantation, um, collection of pituitary glands up until the 1980s from brains. Oh, what for? Oh, that was for um, human growth hormone for children who threatened to become what was called pituitary dwarves. Oh. So in the 1970s in Britain and in Australia, um, but in Britain's where I've done the research, virtually every post-mortem examination carried out, the post-mortem room technician would remove the pituitary gland from the back of the brain, yeah. put it into a jar for which he was paid 10 pence per pituitary <gasps> gland. There was not meant to be an exchange for money for no, anybody no. part. Um, and that became a big scandal in the 1970s when that was found to be happening. So they were collecting something like 60,000 pituitary <gasps> glands a year. Mega, mega. Oh, huge farming of yes, organs. Yes, oh. and of course it was for a very good purpose because then they'd mushed them up and they would give them in tablet or injection form <gasps> to children who were not growing in the way that they should. But that's always then, a form of cannibalism, well, surely. exactly. In fact, they called organ donation a noble form of can cannibalism. <gasps> but... Um, what happened then in the 1980s, which actually stopped this, was the um, mad cow disease. Oh, of course. And they, yeah, they found it. Was that one of the causes? Uh, yes. Wow. So. I'd never understood No, not a that. cause of mad cow no. disease, but one of the causes of people of the... who'd been taking this human yeah. grow growth hormone becoming very ill themselves and dying. So um, synthetic forms of human growth hormone <sighs> substituted from the 1980s. I mean, I suppose one part of you could sort of say, well, this is all part of the kind of the evolution of medical science and yes. understanding and we're all very grateful for what medicine can do yes. in the modern era and who knows what it'll do long after we're gone. But, yes. but, uh, but it again, is... it comes back to consent. Well, yes. No one yes. was being asked, can we take... Yes. That pituitary gland. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so it was all being done on the slide. Yes. How incredible. Yes. So do we think this happens today? Well, well who knows what happens today. Mm. There is a um, an Italian surgeon at the moment who is saying he's ready to do the first head transplant. <gasps> now, um, and he has um, a man who is willing to um, have someone else's, he wants his own head kept, and but he will take a cadaver from the neck down and because he's suffering from a terrible disease. Um, and he lives in Russia and he's saying, yes, he's willing to be the first person to whom this is done. Now, the head is the only thing that has 
not been transplanted, except for Russian experiments in the 1930s when they were creating two-headed dogs and all sorts of things that you don't even want to think about, really. (laughs) Um, So he's not going to have done that without experimenting in some way, is he? He's not just going to carry out the world's first head transplant without some kind of experimentation already having happened. So... It does raise lots and it lots of questions. It raises lots of questions. Goodness me. <laughs> yes. And on that incredibly almost surreal, somewhat macabre. Not but too far in the no, future. No, but fascinating futuristic moment. <laughs> I think we'll end our fabulous interview with the amazing Helen MacDonald. Dr. Thank Helen MacDonald. Thank you, <laughs> Helen. It was absolutely brilliant. But before you're allowed to leave the book cave, yes. we ask you the oh, yes. question we ask all of our interviewees, and that is what are the three books that you would like to virtually donate to our virtual time capsule, the three books that you would leave the world a thousand years from now? For me, they would be... Um, Books I enjoy reading that explain something about our present moment, Mm -hmm. so they're contemporary novels. Um, The first would be um, uh, part of that new burgeoning genre of nature writing, so H is for Hawk by another Helen MacDonald, which is memoir and and natural history. Lovely. The second would be uh, practically any book by Elizabeth Strout, but... Olive Kittredge would be my favourite because she just does characters so well. Mm. She she complicated characters. She's your writer. Multi-layered. Yes. Looks incredibly simple on the surface. Absolutely. So a wonderful read. Depth but depth. Yes. My name is Lucy Barton. Is That's remarkable. Yeah. Yes. Any Small, of books, but yeah. I love that. Jam-packed. Trend to novellas, don't you? Yeah, I love incredible. That. Yeah. And the third would be... I had trouble with this one, but writers who write about place so well that place is almost another character. Oh, yes. And I think I'd go for Graham Swift's Waterland, which is set in the Fens, so the east of England, um, goes back into history about reclaiming land from sea, basically, but also its characters living in the present dealing with all this, yes. Fantastic. I haven't read that one, so I will have to definitely... Have to definitely do that. Graham's with Sweet Waterland and the Fen Country. It always reminds me of Dorothy Sayers, The Nine Tailors. Oh, I haven't read that. Oh, okay. wonderful. And I'm that fascinated is, by the Fen. Well, it's then you like, must read okay. that. It's, yes. it's a brilliant book. Uh-huh. Probably, perhaps one of her best. books. Helen MacDonald, what a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jenny. Wonderful. Thank you. In the Book Cave was recorded at the Mance with the assistance of 94.7 FM Geelong and produced by Corner Shop Studios, Jam Lab and Creative Geelong.